Welcome to University of Iowa Insights, a monthly audio magazine featuring interviews with some of the world's leading thinkers, researchers, and teachers. In this, the December 2009 edition of our program, Ben Honeycutt, Professor of Leisure Studies, talks with Nicole Reel about work-sharing arrangements that have been used to address recessions in the U.S. and abroad. Lois Gray discusses suicide prevention with John Westerfeld, Professor of Counseling Psychology. John offers insights on this difficult subject and advice on how to make a difference. And Becky Soglin talks to Denise Albert, a University of Iowa Healthcare Rehabilitation Specialist and Dietitian, about weight management during the holidays. I'm talking today with Ben Honeycutt, Professor of Leisure Studies at the University of Iowa. Ben, the recession is causing hard times for a lot of workers. Could you tell us how work-sharing agreements have been used to preserve jobs in past recessions? Uh, Volkswagen in Germany did this back in the 90s, and they're still doing it. They went to a 29-hour week in order to preserve the jobs that were endangered uh, instead of laying off people they laid off the time. The same sort of thing happened in France. Some of the private companies there, Thompson Tube, just outside of Paris, went to a same sort of work-sharing deal. The France itself passed a law in the 90s that was in operation until 2005, uh, requiring a 36-hour week uh, in order to deal with unemployment. The Kellogg's in Battle Creek, uh, Michigan, the cereal plant, uh, went to a 30-hour week in 1930, in order to deal with unemployment from three eight-hour shifts to four six-hour shifts. And it worked until 1985. This was a, a traditional solution to unemployment. So how did the workers respond to having their hours cut? Workers liked it. They thought it was a good deal even though they were losing some money. The, the reward, the compensation, was the extra leisure. People in Kellogg's, I talked with hundreds of, of the workers and it was sort of revealing. Uh, they were they lived just well, just just fine, thank you. Uh, they had enough money. They didn't starve to death. They talked about the center of their lives shifting from work to things outside of work. Work was a means to an end. I work in order to live. I don't live in order to work. Um, heard that a thousand times. <laughs> if people, for the most part, enjoyed this work-life balance and it was successful in terms of awaiting layoffs, then why don't we hear much about it now? We have a religion of work. We believe that work is the only reality and the only virtue. The United States is the only industrial nation that does not have a law requiring vacations. All other industrial nations, including Korea, legislate at least three weeks vacation. We have two weeks on average. So Ben, we know that employers are using furlough days to avoid layoffs. Do you have any sense of whether this could turn things back in the other direction so people would start to maybe appreciate their leisure time more? Maybe. I would hope that, that the, the, the possibility of living a life and that you get along just fine with less money and you have instead this new time maybe that would be a, an experience that would shake people in their heart of hearts that maybe there is something more important to do than work. Maybe that uh, life is to be lived, not at work or in the marketplace, buying new crap that you've never seen before. Life is to be lived freely outside of the marketplace. In community organizations, the church, 
with family, neighbors, hobby groups, in parks. I think the best way to get back is to realize that this vision was part of our American heritage for uh, most of this nation's life. The work ethic was at the heart of the 19th century, but the people who wrote, wrote strongest about, the, most passionately about the work ethic, thought that the work ethic had a purpose, a goal. Uh, get enough, work hard. The reward would be living life freely. Hi, I'm John Westerfeld, and I'm a professor in the University of Iowa College of Education's Counseling Psychology Program. I've worked with many suicidal individuals over my 30-year career, and I've published extensively on the topic. Suicide can strike during any time of the year, but some people seem to think that suicides really spike around the holidays, John. Is that true, or is that just a myth? Most of the data indicate that actually the biggest spike for suicide attempts and completions is actually in the early spring especially in cold climates such as Iowa. And the reason for that is if you're in uh, a depressed state and it's January or February in the upper Midwest and you look around, you're seeing a lot of other people at least appear to be feeling that way on the face of it. But when spring comes, when the weather finally turns, if you're depressed then, you're very, very acutely aware. Depression certainly does go up over the holidays. Uh, anxiety goes up. Uh, suicide certainly happens over the holidays and, of course, can happen at any time. John, what are some of the warning signs and risk factors for suicide? I want to preface the risk factors by saying it remains extremely complex and hard to predict if an individual is going to attempt suicide or not. But be that as it may, there are a number of things that often are involved in suicidal risk. Most suicidal people are depressed, not all of them, but most of them are. Many of them feel a combination of helplessness and hopelessness, a very dangerous combination in any area of mental health, but particularly with depression and suicide. So hopeless, nothing's ever going to change, and helpless, I can't do anything about it. You put those two together, it, it can be a real concern. Alcohol and drug abuse uh, can correlate with suicide. A previous attempt is one of the most significant predictors, so we're automatically more concerned about someone if he or she has attempted in the past. Certain kinds of psychiatric diagnoses, of course, can relate to suicide. There are four or five of them that can be related there, though depression probably the most correlated with suicide. People who are very impulsive concern us more because they may agree not to harm themselves, but their impulsivity may override that. People with a generally low self-concept, people who have been victimized uh, in their lives, either through bullying, uh, past uh, abuse of some kind, and people who have what we call suicidal ideation, they're thinking about it. What's I think really important here is to recognize that uh, you can have all of those and still not be suicidal, and you can have none of those and attempt. So what should you do if you are concerned about someone being suicidal? I'd say there, there are two or three key things. The most important thing, in my opinion, is to encourage the person to seek treatment, uh, to reach out to them, to try to mitigate their helplessness and hopelessness by raising the possibility of treatment, not to be afraid to ask them about whether or not they're feeling suicidal. There is a myth that by asking people about this, we can encourage them to do it. And the evidence, while anything is possible in this field, the evidence really doesn't support that. It, in fact, it supports that if you 
bring up the issue and ask someone about this and encourage them to seek treatment, you're more likely to save a life than to cause a suicide. A critical thing about seeking treatment is not to give up on encouraging the person. Most people initially will not go. They'll resist it. But with continued encouragement and support, many people eventually will seek help. And what are some local resources that people might turn to for help? In terms of local resources, depending on where people are, they often involve a crisis center, any kind of local mental health facility, people in private practice, hospital emergency rooms in an acute situation people can uh, typically walk into and receive services immediately. So there's a multitude of resources depending on where people reside. But again, I think the most important thing is to seek, uh, seek help somewhere. With the holidays coming and New Year's resolutions on the line, many people think about losing weight and how to keep it off. I'm talking today about successful strategies with Denise Albert, a cardiac rehabilitation specialist and dietitian with CHAMPS at University of Iowa Heart and Vascular Center. Denise, when it comes to weight concerns during the holidays, what's your advice? A lot of recipes, of course, during the holidays are pretty high calorie. They typically contain a lot of fat, a lot of sugars, and those types of things. So one advice that I would give is certainly modify some of our recipes. We can certainly lower the sugar content by just not adding as much, or we could lower the fat content by using fat replacers such as applesauce. Another thing that we could certainly do to help keep control of how many calories we're consuming a day is write it down on a piece of paper. Use a food diary. That way you know what you're eating, the caloric content of the foods that you're eating, and can control your portions or maybe some of the foods that you choose during the day to help you reduce your calories. What are some specific tips for eating well or eating less at all those parties we get invited to? Well, studies do show that foods that contain a lot of water content, like fruits and vegetables, for instance, can help make us feel full, therefore help us eat less. So if you're at a party that has, say, a fruit and vegetable tray that might have some hopefully low-fat dip or maybe some hummus, try to go for things like that first. Fill half of your plate with your vegetables and then go for some of the other high-calorie foods. Try to fill up on those veggies and fruit and then eat a little less of those higher-fat, higher-calorie foods. Are there some other things that can make a difference for weight loss? Also during the holidays, because it is kind of a busy time of year, we forget about getting exercise. So getting exercise is really going to help us control our weight. So we want to make sure that we're exercising at least 30 minutes at moderate intensity, and that's the minimum. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. We can certainly exercise 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night to get that 30 minutes in. It just depends on what your schedule is and where you can fit that in. We all have good intentions about making weight loss resolutions. What can help make a resolution like that stick? A lot of us make rigid weight loss resolutions. And sometimes we set ourselves up for failure. So I think it's really important to start simple with your resolutions. Take it step by step. Build on your resolution as you reach each goal. And I think that could help keep you on task and help you reach that resolution goal. 
You can certainly write things down. Keeping a diary has been shown, even in research, to help people stick with their weight loss goals. And I think um, just simple steps. You know, take it one day at a time. Don't beat yourself up if you, you know, go overboard one day. And just get your calories in line that next day, and you'll do fine during the holidays. This podcast was produced by the University of Iowa Office of University Relations. For more information on our podcasts or to subscribe, visit us at news.uiowa.edu.